Let's pray. God, as we turn to the preaching of Your Word, I pray that You will now set everything else aside in our minds, that You will fill our hearts with truth, that we will not ignore it, that we will be not only hearers, but doers of Your great Word. God, I pray that the distractions of this world will no longer keep us from Your presence. But by your holy, gracious, and mighty arm, you will bring us to yourself. God, I pray that the preaching of your word will resonate with your people this morning. That it will resonate with Redeemer Church and all the churches here in our area that love you, that center ourselves around our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that all of the sister churches here in this area will hear Your voice this morning. Awaken us, Lord God. Do what we cannot do. Open us to the eternal realities of who You are and what we're created for. God, do the supernatural today, I pray. God, I pray that You will sustain Your people, that Your Word will fill us and feed our souls, that it will sustain us and give us what we need. Preserve us, O God. God, for those here who do not know who You are, I pray that You will awaken them. God, use Your Word today in a mighty way. Lord, we pray that You will do it for Grace Buchanan Church. We pray that You will help that body to receive the food of Your good Word. That they will be sustained and strengthened and that from them, You will go and bring in more of Your flock that the Gospel will advance in their area and more will give you the glory. Lord, we pray for the Brahmin who don't even know you. They're worshiping created things. They're worshiping false gods. These pathetic, concrete, sand, wooden things. They've exchanged knowledge of the one true God for these carved images. Lord, forgive them. Forgive them of their ignorance. Forgive them of their disobedience. Give them eyes to see the real God, the reality of who You are. Send brothers and sisters to them before it is too late. Lord, have mercy on the Brahmin. I pray that You will create a church, that You will build up a church among them, that You'll call brothers to boldly give the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And You'll strengthen a body there that will have Brahmin brothers and sisters on our left and our right forever worshiping our great God, thanking You for saving them. God, we ask all this in Your Son's precious name. Amen.
If you have been following the news lately, then you most likely have heard of recent high-profile persons in the Christian community so-called leaving the faith. I want to say a few brief words about this and then share how it relates to today's text. One person is former pastor Joshua Harris. He became well-known in the 1990s for writing a book. He recently left the pastorate and has announced that he and his wife are divorcing, and now he claims to have lost his faith. Another well-known person, Marty Sampson, is known for writing some popular contemporary Christian music for Hillsong. He's even been called a prolific worship music writer. He also has announced that he's losing his faith. This, these announcements, this news, needs to be addressed on so many different levels. For this morning, I want to look at just one aspect of this and ask the question, can someone lose their faith? And the short answer is not genuine faith. Can someone lose their faith? Not genuine faith. But people do fall away if their belief is based on their own understanding and is propelled by their own personal effort and their strength to be in the faith. Which doesn't make it genuine faith at all. Someone who genuinely believes in Christ, meaning they have been called by God, given new life, eternal life in the Son, and are being sustained in the faith, not by their own wisdom or experience or by their own effort, but bought by the blood-bought grace of God. It is a preserving that's not our own. From God by His Spirit, all who are born again are being kept in Christ by the Spirit for Christ. It's a faith that's imputed to us, meaning it's from outside of us and it's given to us by Almighty God. We did not arrive at some decision. We did not have some kind of epiphany. We did not come up with it. It has been given by God. A new life of faith that is endless. And this goes for all who are in the church, all who have ever been part of God's people, and all who ever will be part of God's people. Even leadership, leaders, pastors, those in different ministries are completely dependent on the grace of God to save them and to sustain them. We're told in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. From biblical times until now, there are those who look like they're Christian. They say some of the right things. They have, according to the Hebrews writer, they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. But they are not born of God. 
faith that has been imputed to us, true, saving, genuine faith that's given to us is a reliance on God and not ourselves. Everything about the Christian life is therefore dependent on the grace of God. It is His faithfulness that keeps you in the faith. It is not your actions. It is not some rhythm that you find. It is not what you do. It is God's faithfulness that keeps you in the faith. And that reveals a grievous error in today's church, especially in Western Christianity. And it ought to be a huge warning sign for us, like a bright flashing red light in our faces. In Christendom today, it's easy to fit into the Christian culture, to have the right look, to know the lingo, to do certain things, to go to church, to say amen, to have feelings that stir when worship, when singing is done. But none of these are the standard. None of those ought to be looked at to say, yeah, that person's in the faith. None of that ought to be the litmus test for those who are genuinely dependent on God's grace. They can't be what we use to affirm or to determine genuine faith. So then what is? What is? How can we then have assurance of genuine faith? We all are experts at looking at the surface at looking at what's done, analyzing others, counting the temporal things that that each of us do. But we're poor at looking within ourselves, taking the summons of the Word of God to clutch on to the Gospel of Christ with intense seriousness. Not just agreeing with the precepts of the faith, but searching the Scriptures for ourselves, praying for grace and finding Christ, being tethered to Him, knowing worship songs, going through the Sunday, the Sunday activity, having moral conduct doesn't make you Christian. It didn't make these men Christian. Knowing doctrine doesn't save. Even teaching theology can be deceptive. Both are good, by the way. I have come to love the doctrines of grace. I have come to really look forward to diving into theology and studying and learning more about God. I have found great insight and personal growth. But only Christ saves. There has to be a head-to-heart connection that none of us can do on our own. And it's not one or the other. It's not focusing on what we know. It's not stirring feelings within our heart. It has to be a head-to-a-heart connection. It's not worth being in theology if you're not in the Word more. Being in the Word pulls the curtain back on who Christ is. 
It reveals He is Savior and Lord, the Almighty God, the Holy One of Israel. And it opens your own heart to your own sin and how God hates sin. You see, God doesn't just judge sin. He genuinely and utterly hates sin. And that causes you to fear Him and run to Christ who saves you from your sin. You see, those who want the benefits of God, but not the holiness of God, they don't know the true God. And their faith is in something other than God. Those who have so-called left the faith, they may have found religion, and they did its rituals, but they didn't find Christ, and they didn't have genuine faith. They didn't have His holiness and His grace. John Calvin says in the third book of his Institutes that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from Him. All that He suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. That's why doing all the checks doesn't mean anything if there's not God-given grace If God has not opened your eyes, you and I can't do that. It is a working of the Spirit that makes that happen. Now, it does involve knowing the truth. Don't hear me and say that study is not important. Don't hear me say that what we do here on Sunday can be skipped and somehow we're, we're just as strong in the faith as we ever were. That's not what I'm saying. It does involve knowledge of the truth, but the Spirit makes us rely on the truth. Surrendering to it. Dying to everything else. And living in the promise of God. Reliance on Christ is what those men are missing. The Hebrews writer says again in chapter 3, verse 14, We know we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. When God saves us, When He pours out His grace and He gives you genuine faith, when He saves you and me, He starts an unstoppable work in us which will certainly bring us to Himself. It is based on an everlasting covenant of a faithful God who has promised to put the fear of God in our hearts that we will not turn from Him. He promised that in Jeremiah Paul says in Philippians, He who began a good work will most certainly finish it. Those who so-called leave the faith will never part of the faith then. And sadly, well-known apostates take others with them. And that's why it's important to speak on it this morning. You and I can have confidence knowing that Christ's call is an everlasting call that keeps us forever bound to Him and gives us hope in Christ. We don't hope in a book. We don't hope in a gathering or anything else. Our hope is in a person. 
This world is not all there is. We gather together in hope to worship this person, to worship our eternal Lord and Savior who gives us that hope. If you follow the weekly emails that I send out, then you've noticed lately I've been writing a lot about worship. The glorious reality of giving praise to the true and living God. The wellspring in the soul that arises when in sweet adoration of the triune God. Worship. The true essence of worship comes from knowing God and putting Him in the rightful place in our lives. Knowing that you are His and all of life is His, like we read earlier. And He has graciously washed you of the guilt of your sin by faith in Christ. It is thanking Him that you can trust Him to do what He has said. And this is a life that is reliant on His grace. It is a life that's confessional and it is constantly seeking His holiness. Here's how this news and looking at what faith is relates to our text. Those who have a constant reliance on God will not fall away. Not putting hope in what you do day in and day out. Not saying that, yeah, you, you're a good Christian or hearing others compliment you and all the Christianly things you do. That's not it at all. Those who have a constant reliance on God will not fall away. We have come to the end of our study through the book of Nehemiah this morning. In this last chapter, we see how deep the contamination of sin is and the need for more than just religious changes to church gatherings. Now, the changes that have taken place up to this point have been real. All that the children of Israel have experienced were real changes. Spiritual revival has taken place. God has preserved them and He's made them new. But in all that that they've done, there is a need. Even after everything that they've done, there is still an ongoing need for a Savior to come and give them what they cannot give themselves. And that's freedom from sin and peace with God. Chapter 13 tells us there is a forever dependence on the grace of God. Last week, it was a treasuring the grace of God. We end this book with an endless need of the grace of God. You and I have the inability to sustain our faith without the aid of the Holy Spirit giving it to us through the Word of God. We are forever dependent on Him to keep us. And those who have left the faith don't have that dependence or have forgotten it. They stop looking to God and they look to themselves in this temporary world. True saving faith keeps looking to God. Worship praises God. Confession rests on God and we God's people forever need him to be with him. 
Now, Nehemiah, he's been governor of Jerusalem for 12 years now. Eventually, he's called back to Artaxerxes, the Persian king, back in Susa, which he dutifully did. He was there for a time. Scripture doesn't say how long he was there. Nehemiah tells us in verse 6 that after some time, I asked to take leave of the king. And so he comes back. He got permission from Artaxerxes, and he comes back to the city. And as he approached Jerusalem, he must have had a deja vu moment. Because as he enters the gates, he began to see some of the old signs. Some of these sins that were previously addressed and eradicated. Things that had been removed, things that were broken and healed. But now Jerusalem had turned again from God and His ways. There was no longer a dependence on God and His grace. They were not looking to God. They were not worshiping God or resting in Him. God had been knocked out of His rightful place in their lives and replaced with the here and now, the temporary. They were not living by faith, and so their lives reflected ones that did not include Him or ascribe to Him the honor He deserves. And you know what? You know what, church? This is true of every single one of us. We are all guilty of this. Those who fall away have turned from God and His truth, but even those of us who trust in God's promises need the constant reminder that it's God's grace that we need. We can't do it ourselves. We need help. The Jews had settled in a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. God had told them, you are to be a light to the Gentiles. You are to be holy, set apart for my purposes. They had been reminded of that in the daily readings of Scripture, but they had not drawn toward God. They had been drawn toward the darkness. The light had grown dim. There was revival and reform in chapters 8 through 12, but now we see that the Reformation had fizzled. They needed more than just changes in their lives. They needed more than just a new routine. They needed more than a revival. They needed saving. And this sets up the coming Savior who will give His people all they need to remain in God. He will provide the grace that they continually need. After verse 31 of chapter 13, the door closes and there's this long silence in Israel. We don't hear of anything else until John the Baptist comes and calls the people to repentance. There's this need of a saving. So let's look at this chapter and see how this last of Old Testament stories, time-wise, how it causes a longing for a more complete and lasting spiritual renewal that God promises. I want to briefly look at the first three verses and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter. In verses 1 through 3, they really go with the last part of chapter 12. Verse 1 tells you that on that day, that's how how we know that it should be part of chapter 12. Because if you look up at 
Chapter 12, verse 44, it says the same thing, on that day. And then chapter 13, verse 1 again, on that day. So the first part of chapter 13 is actually a part of the dedication ceremony that took place. Now, why didn't I include that in last week's sermon? Because it's also a transition into today. And so it's fitting to kind of be a bridge with both. What we're told in the first three verses is that what the people discover as they read the book of Moses, and in particular, it's Deuteronomy chapter 23. What they learn is that no Ammonite or no Moabite should ever enter the the assembly of God. And what needs to be known here in our recent history, passages like this have been abused. But the Jews are not practicing racism here. This is not based on a different race that's going on here. But there is a separation between the Jews and these other peoples. It was a very real, and if they wanted to be obedient, a very necessary separation that they needed to have. Moses had excluded the Ammonites and the Moabites because of their opposition against Israel and their idolatry. This was when the children of Israel were still in the wilderness and they came close to the promised land. They asked the Ammonites for bread and water and the Ammonites refused and actually instead they went to war against Israel. And by God's mighty hand, Israel defeated them. In the same chapter, the Moabites sent Balaam the prophet to curse the Israelites, but God turned it into a blessing. Because of that, the Ammonites and the Moabites were forbidden from the assembly of God. Now, I also want to point out how we know that this is not based on a race is remember Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth who said, your people shall be my people and your God is my God. For anyone who's then not like Ruth, for anyone who does not look to God, who wouldn't turn to the true God, they were to be removed in order to protect the people from idolatry. They were against God as they had shown in the wilderness and they were pagans. So this removal was to protect the children of Israel from their influence. You see, this was not about race. This was about purity of worship. The people read Scripture and they were obedient to it. Under the Old Covenant, this was a good thing to do at the time. Then we read of spiritual decline 12 years later. How long does it take for a reformation to be undone? If you go back in history and and you look at the spiritual revivals, the renewals that have taken place among God's people, and the reformations that have gone on, how long does it take for them to be undone? It begins immediately when Scripture is neglected. Nehemiah has four responses to this decline. First, Nehemiah restores the temple. In verse 4, now before this, which refers to the events that happened while Nehemiah was away, not during the time of the dedication. So don't get confused with that wording. It's easy to confuse what's, what's going on. 
verse 4 begins after some time of the dedication. Despite all of the reform that took place, there has come a disregard for the Scriptures. Everything that goes on here in the rest of chapter 13 is because the people have ignored God's Word. But do you remember in chapter 10 what they said? We will do everything written in this book. They forgot that. In verses 4 and 5, Tobiah, who's an Ammonite, comes back on the scene. You remember him in the beginning of the book. He was part of the opposition. He was one of those who tried to kill Nehemiah. Eliashib has given Tobiah a room in the temple. There's an Ammonite sleeping in the temple of our God. This has ruined the purity of worship. Look at how Nehemiah responds to this when he returns in verse 8. I was very angry and I threw all the furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. The house and all the items in it that were to be holy unto God have been defiled. The holiness of God had been made a mockery. The people have compromised with what's evil in God's sight. And there, within Nehemiah, there arises a righteous anger. This reminds us of another time when the temple had become a mockery. It had become a merchant house full of thieves and robbers. When Jesus goes in and He sees this, what does He do? He cleanses the temple. Jesus got angry at the dishonor of God. Now you may be thinking that I'm a little over the top by emphasizing this. Maybe you think Nehemiah was a little too extreme. He's a little too radical here. But you and I should be just as concerned about the things that dishonor God and be willing to do something about it. When God is trampled and disgraced, there ought to be a fire that shoots right up the spine of your back that causes you to make a stand for the name of our great God. Nehemiah is reflecting how God sees sin and the dishonor. God hates the sin. This was not a time for a sit-down talk. This was not a time to kind of work things out among them and hash it out. Today, we may lean towards smoothing things over with appeasement and saying what's good for you is good for you and I'll go and do this over here. No, not in God's house. Not when it comes to the honor and the glory of our great God. He deserves more than that. We make a stand for the name of God because He's worthy of it. How did all this come about? Now, a lot of emphasis is put on Nehemiah's reaction, but how did all this come about? Eliashib had compromised and he had cultivated a relationship with Tobiah the Ammonite. The audacity here is not Nehemiah's response, but what he's responding to. Eliashib had aligned himself with someone who did not honor God. 
who defiled God's house. He allowed this desecration to happen and was not concerned with what God is concerned with. He was indifferent to the seriousness of sin. Nehemiah confronts this. The name of God will not be dishonored. Oh, that we would make a stand like that. May God in His grace give you and me a fire to say enough of the dishonor to our God. His holiness will be upheld. Nehemiah orders the room and the one next to it to be purified. And he restores all the temple items. You see, you and I cannot compromise when it comes to the holiness of God. Like Nehemiah and more so like Christ, we should have this zeal for the holiness and worship of our God. The worship of God is at the center of who we are as God's people. Spiritual purity is a standard we cannot cross. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are temples of the Lord. Our bodies are temples. There is a holiness and a purity of our bodies that must be maintained for worship. Paul is not talking about a daily washing in the shower but what comes out of the body that defiles it. We cannot worship God in purity if we are compromising in sin. This restoring that takes place because of the gospel is so that worship, pure worship, will take place among God's people. If we are still befriending our sin, then we are mocking God and His holiness by raising our hands or saying wonderful things about Him. We must continue to address our hearts and ensure that we are remaining pure from within. We need a zeal for the holiness of God. We need to be cleansed through repentance so we can worship our great God. Next, Nehemiah then restores God's servants in verses 10 through 14. The Levites have been put to the side, they've been marginalized. Instead of being at the center of God's people, teaching the Scriptures, bringing the Word, telling His precepts and explaining it to the people, their support has been taken away and they had to maintain their own livelihood. The giving to the temple had stopped. God's plan was for the Levites to be sustained by tithes and this wasn't happening anymore. So the Levites went out to the fields Look at what neglecting God's Word does. How fast and how easy we slip down the sinful slope into apostasy when we neglect God's Word. No worship reflecting a heart that's gone cold. No giving, a lack of concern for others. A spiritual decline has taken place because God's Word was no longer a priority in the people's lives. Materialism, the love of money and things, they had become Israel's God. No one cared about the Scriptures or about God. 
Nehemiah goes about setting things straight. The people bring in offerings. He puts in, he puts in place men who could be trusted. And they were faithful to the ways of God. Third, in verses 15 through 22, Nehemiah restores God's day. Money and work, ways to get ahead in this life had replaced the Sabbath. And sadly, it's that way today. A day that was supposed to be set aside as a sign of commitment to God had been replaced. It was a mark of all that could see a relationship with God. That is what the setting aside of the Sabbath was. A resting in the promises of God and it showed of a relationship with God. There was no longer this visible sign of a relationship with God. God's people were just like the pagans. There was no reminder to themselves and no witness to the world of God's provision and His goodness and His kindness. There was no turning back to Him publicly and saying, You are are the source of everything that we are and we thank You. Nehemiah first appeals to the Scriptures, doesn't he? The fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. He then appeals to history and says they were taken into exile because of the very things that the people were doing. He then does what others might think is extreme. He orders the gates closed and guarded. He won't let anyone in or out. And then he warns the merchants, I will lay hands on you if you don't stop. He is threatening physical violence on those who are attempting and threatening the purity of the Sabbath. This is not a model for us. Let me begin there. Threatening violence for those who do not come to worship service is not a model that we should follow. It does show, though, that Nehemiah had a passion, a zeal for the worship of God. And that is a model for us. But Nehemiah was a broken man just like the rest of us. He was a broken person. He was just a man who needed God as much as anybody. Lastly, Nehemiah restores God's people. In verses 23 through the end of the chapter, Despite what was promised in the first three verses of the chapter here, marriages have occurred with the Ammonites and women of Ashdod and Moab. Half of the kids have come now. Half of the kids couldn't speak the language of God's people. Their spiritual heritage was on the verge of extinction. One generation of total apostasy. Completely abandoning God. Nehemiah condemns them in verse 25. He beats some of them and pulls out their hair. Again, not a model for us. Whether we justify what he's done with his position as a governor, or as some scholars have looked at it as a form of public shaming, it shows that no one has it all together. 
As much zeal as Nehemiah had, he still needed the grace of God to sustain him in purity also. Nehemiah is a man of conviction. He has a passion for God. But he is not what the people need ultimately. They need someone to save them from their sin and these failures and who will restore them. Not just expose who they are. Someone who will renew them and purify them. And that's the end of the chapter. It doesn't seem to like urge you on in, in service for God really, does it? It kind of ends on a sour note for us. It kind of leaves you with wondering what, what's going to come next. This, this can't be all there is. There's a reason why the book of Nehemiah ends with chapter 13 and not on the high note of chapter 12. It reveals people need more than what anyone of this world can do or give. Nehemiah was used for God. There was real reforms taking place, but they didn't last. Faith will run out if it's fed by human effort. But saving faith will never be lacking when it's supplied by the endless grace of God who gives in His love without end. The people don't need Nehemiah ultimately. The people need God in His loving grace to redeem them. This brings us back to the people who I mentioned at first who have fallen away. Human effort will never be enough. We will all run out of steam. Saving faith, one that loves God and worships Him, only comes from the grace of our God. And we all need this grace. No one here can keep God's law. No one can do what is needed to sustain us to be with God. There's only one who addresses sin. Only one who accounts for our sin. Only one who cleanses from all the impurity, who keeps relationship with God in perfect covenant, who never compromised or discarded God's word, who always upheld the word of God and said, my God is great and he deserves praise. Jesus Christ is that one. Jesus is the one who preserves his people and renews them. It is he who's needed. And that's why we have chapter 13. It is He who gives God's grace so freely and abundantly. The book of Nehemiah has us longing for Jesus. And in our hearts, we here today, we long for Jesus also. And you know what? We find Him in the Scriptures. We find Him in the Word of God. He saves us from our own idolatry, the worship of ourselves and our sin and the temptation that we all have. It is in Jesus where we find true worship and love and the restoring of who we ought to be. For those of us who have Him, who have received God's grace, there will be failures. The reforms in your life they all kind of peter out and then 
you'll, you'll struggle a bit and then by God's grace, you'll continue on and then you're going to have failures again. We will sin. But Jesus pleads on our behalf. And He promises to return and give us a life of grace that's apart from sin and full of love and joy. We need Jesus. We need His love and grace more than helping us in this life. Don't just look to Jesus to help you through the day. Don't just look to Jesus to make it along in this life. We need Jesus to give us eternal, lasting life that will not end. God, grant us lives full of your grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Lives that will not fall away for your great name. Let's pray.